Welcome to the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast, where we go inside what makes a coach a coach. I felt like that connection with my high school coach was so strong and, and just had so much trust in him. So he had called me and said, you know, I know you, you know, you want to get into the business world, but I think you've got this coaching book. And I think it's something that if you don't do, you're going to regret. The Guardians of the Game podcast is a production of the National Association of Basketball Coaches and IMG and is brought to you by Wilson Sporting Goods. And now your host, Coach Dave Odom. Welcome back to the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast. Today's guest is the head coach of the South Dakota State Jackrabbits, T.J. Otzelberger. Well, that's a mouthful, man. It is. <laughs> and I'm going to call you T.J., and I hope you're okay with that. That sounds great. Yeah, with the last name I've got, that's the best way to go. Listen, I'm excited about this one, maybe as much as any that I've done this year. We've done about 12 to 15 of them. But uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I know most of these coaches. They're, they're guys that coached against me when I was uh, coaching, and I know them by first name and everything. And, you, you know, I don't know that much about South Dakota State. I don't know that much about T.J. Otzelberger. So I'm excited about learning about that and where you fit in from – a coaching standpoint. I'm excited about knowing South Dakota basketball, South Dakota State basketball, and North Dakota. Um, I was kidding here in the studio before we called. Um, I want to go. I've been to South Dakota. I recruited hard Mike Miller, and I know you know the name. Uh, back when when he was he was coming along as several years ago, uh, and then he's had a very great career in uh, the NBA. But I, I've been to South Dakota a number of times. Never been to North Dakota. I got to find a way for T.J. Otzelberger to get me up to North Dakota <laughs> because that's the only state in the union that I haven't been to. So there's a lot. I'm excited about this one, T.J. So let, let's get started. How about that? Outstanding. All right. Let's go back to when you were a high school uh, player. Uh, you. Uh, you were born in, in Milwaukee. You uh, went to high school at Thomas More High School in Wisconsin. Uh, you went to Wisconsin Whitewater. You were team captain there. And uh, somewhere along the road thir- in 2013, you, you met um, your present wife, uh, Allison. And rumor has it, I've checked around now, you can't deny this, that you were not the best basketball player in your family. And uh, you're not the best basketball coach in your family. It could be your wife, Allison, which I think is a compliment. Yeah, I think the, the play part, there's definitely no question about that. Uh, she uh, she had a very celebrated career at Iowa State as a player, probably one of the best in the history of the school. Ended up being the 10th overall pick in the WNBA draft and was part of a WNBA championship her rookie year in Seattle. So, um you know, she uh, as a player, I was a wannabe. She was uh, she was a real player. So I was the I was the guy hovering around gyms, uh, begging to get in the pickup game and hoping somebody would pick me up. And shoot, I think even my college coach, I got in, last year, I got an additional year of eligibility, and he might have been ready to be done with me. And uh, <laughs> so my wife on the other end, uh, she uh, she was a tremendous player and probably still would be had we not uh, started a family and had three kids. So. Um, I think that is definitely true as a player and as a coach. It's probably debatable. She just 
she had a couple years at Marshalltown uh, Community College, and then as we moved around, she's made the the sacrifice for our family and and for me and and for us to kind of chase this dream uh, in college basketball coaching. But uh, really fortunate that not only she you know she's walked in these shoes, she's ultra competitive and she knows some of the sacrifices coaches need to make and time away from their family and extra hours at the office. So I'm really lucky that I found her. Uh, and I'm not stupid enough to not keep my best recruit happy and uh, definitely don't want her to graduate and transfer. Valentine Day coming February 14. Don't forget that. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> I appreciate the reminder. Listen, um, be truthful here now. Um, I, I'll tell you about my experience. My, you know, my wife, uh, not she was not a basketball aficionado like yours, okay? But she was, uh, and she was the greatest support ever. When I'd come home after a difficult game, she knew she knew when to say yes and when to say no, when to speak up and when to say nothing. In in Allison's case, she's got such a uh, a really strong basketball background. How does she support you? Um, you know, you win a lot of games, but you don't always win. I mean, how how does that go when you come home at night? Well, I think. First of all, she has a really good feel, like you said and mentioned with your wife. She knows. Uh, she can kind of tell my mood. I try when I walk through that door, regardless of it, uh, if we got our brains beat in or if we came off a huge win, uh, to try to be the same person. As I you know, drive my truck home and pull into that driveway, I kind of remind myself that, uh, you know, that there's more important things than winning and losing a game, and now you're about to go in. Um, you know, with your family. And so I try best I can, but, you know, some nights I probably do a little better than others. She's uh, she's awesome. I mean, she we don't talk a whole lot about our team. Uh, I think that's just a, a topic that could get sensitive, um, probably could lead to a debate and uh, maybe a heated one. So we don't really do that, but we spend a lot of time during the week uh, watching other games or watching when I'm watching film and, uh, opponents of ours and things and we'll she'll bounce ideas off and we'll talk and and like I said there's always at least one if not two TVs with games on mostly college sometimes NBA but we got hoops on at our house all the time and um, you know so I, I think more of our relationship in talking basketball is other games other teams and things like that but she's on it now she'll see things on the ticker with injuries and she'll know a certain team plays you know presses and their style of play, she's she's up on it now. But we, like I said, I think for the the betterment of our relationship, we don't talk a whole lot about jackrabbit basketball at home. So she doesn't like like if you you make a decision to let's just say you you went from man to man to zone for one possession or something like that, and the guy drains a three on you. Uh, so when you walk in the house and maybe that cost you the game or something, and she doesn't she doesn't come right at you and say. Why'd you make that change? Why'd you go zone? Why didn't you stay man? Things were going good. She doesn't, she doesn't question that at all. No, she doesn't. And then, you know, part of it, you know, my wife's taller than I am. So maybe she knows I've got a little bit of that short man complex in me too. And that I might take it a little bit sensitive, but no, she doesn't, she doesn't do all that. She, she's supportive. And I think, you know, her college coach had a big influence on her. My wife's originally from Australia. And when she came over to play at Iowa state, um, I think her coach coached her really hard, and she saw a lot of emotion out of him and a lot of, uh, you know, the energy and, and things along those lines. So I, she's she's probably, when it comes to our team, she's kind of stayed that way. And, and truthfully, when she coached, 
you know, and I'd ask her about her team coming home. Yeah, I, I learned very quickly that it was better to just kind of stay away from her own team and let's talk about other people's squads. All right, let's move along your career. You, uh, uh, in uh, 2001, 2004, you were the head basketball coach at Burlington Catholic uh, in Wisconsin. And uh, in 03, you became the AD. And now you got to balance uh, coaching with administrative work. Um, uh, and then uh, in, in uh, 2004, uh, you went down to Mariana, Florida, to Chipola, one of the really big names in junior college basketball uh, in America, even even today, as the assistant basketball coach, um, Coach Hire. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Coach Hire. Yep. Um, and and uh, in 2005, you guys go all the way to the national tournament in Hutchinson. You end up. Uh, uh, third place, I believe. So, you know, tell us about that period of time in there. That had to be a period of growth. I don't know Coach Hire. Tell us how he helped you uh, get to where you are today. Well, I think a couple things. First, uh, you know, like you started as a high school coach, my passion was to teach uh, and, you know, teach FIED. And I taught some high school business, but also, um, you know, my, my love for coaching. And so I was fortunate to have a really – uh, a high school coach that I couldn't think more highly of. I uh, was a tremendous teacher of the game. Uh, he grew up uh, studying Dick Bennett a lot, uh, who at the time was at Wisconsin uh, Green Bay when I was in high school, and went to his clinics and camps and, and just really at that time in the state of Wisconsin, you know, his pack line defense and, and how he was doing things defensively really transcended the state. So I, I felt like that connection with my high school coach was so strong and, and just had so much trust in him. So I graduated college with a business degree and he had called me and said, you know, uh, I know you, you know, you want to get into the business world, but I think you've got this coaching bug. I've coached a lot of guys over the years and I think it's something that if you don't do, you're going to regret. And so I had agreed to become his junior varsity coach. Uh, I, I had a business job during the day, worked on my master's at night, coach practice in between. So for a two-year stint, as I was finishing up my master's, it was pretty. There wasn't a whole lot of choices to make during the day. It was work till about four, uh, coach practice till about six, and you know, and then go to night school till nine most nights, and figure out how to get some homework and practice plans and film and things done, and and then in between maybe sleep here and there. So uh, it was really good two years for me. I think it showed me. Uh, it helped ignite my passion to coach. It, Love being on the floor with the guys. I knew very early on, just love teaching the game, love just being in the drills, and um, knew it was something that I had to do. And so then I finished my master's and created a teaching spot in the building uh, full-time. And uh, my high school coach came in in the fall one year and said, well, I'm going to step down. Um, you're going to, you know, it felt like he was kind of grooming me for that job, even though I was young. And I became the varsity coach. And then shortly after that, um, the athletic director as well. So now I'm at a point where I'm 24 years old. I've got, you know, I went two years removed from college where I, you know, didn't have a whole lot of responsibility. And now uh, you're running an athletic department, you're running a basketball team. Uh, you've got a lot of responsibility on your hands. So I was really fortunate. He set me up for that opportunity. I had great people in Burlington uh, that believed in me and gave me a chance. And um, so I, I spent that next season uh, as the varsity coach and athletic director. 
And uh, really, I'm somebody that asks a lot of questions. I'm always trying to study the game and get better. And as I got into it more, I wanted more basketball. You know, I wanted it to be not that I minded being in the classroom, but I'd learned that where I really was excited is just coaching ball. So I, I went a lot of days to college practices once I had the full-time teaching gig, and we'd usually practice later at night. So a lot of times I'd go to Marquette University practice. Tom, Tom Crane was the coach at the time. Uh, he'd let me come to practice and learn and I'd also attend a lot of other local colleges, Division Two, II, Division Three, just because I was hungry to learn. And so it's, it allowed me to start to build some relationships with people. Uh, it allowed me to, you know, kind of grow my network. And uh, what happened at the end of that summer is, uh, you know, there's a, a coach I'd met working some camps named Mike Jaskolski, who was an assistant at Florida State for Coach Hamilton. And he had said, you know, uh, one of my former players, Chris Jans, is the is now the head coach at Chipola College. And uh, the big-time junior college deal, it's, it's late in the game. It's September, and he's looking for an assistant. And so he put Chris and I in touch. And, uh, you know, Chris is now the head coach at New Mexico State. So went down and worked there. And uh, about a, four to six weeks after I went in, uh, Chris was offered the associate head coaching uh, position with Porter Moser at Illinois State. So he left us, and Greg Heyer got the head coaching job. And Greg is uh, now an assistant at LSU. So I was the assistant for Chris for a short period of time, uh, stayed on with Greg, and, uh, you know, we worked to kind of continue the framework in, uh, that Chris had put in place because he had coached all the, you know, fall workouts and things. And we were pretty much, uh, Greg was thrown as a young head coach into the fire uh, just before the start of the season. And so we, we, you know, came together, worked our tails off, and we're fortunate in that, in that season, um, you know, to, to end up at Hutch. And a lot of great players, a lot of great memories, uh, so much that I learned because as a high school coach, you don't learn all the recruiting. Now you put yourself at one of the top 10 or 15 ju junior colleges on the national level you're seeing a lot of big-time schools come in and recruit your program. You're also recruiting from high schools. So uh, really good for me to just go completely out of region, out of my comfort zone, away from home, away from everybody, and just kind of one of those sink or swim type moments for my life. And really just felt grateful for the opportunity. And Coach Hire did a great job leading us, and we were able to get, like you mentioned, to third place at Hutch in the national tournament. And uh, really, for me, that was my first year of being exposed to college basketball and, and what it's all about. TJ, listen, you said something kind of in the middle of that that, that kind of caught my attention. You mentioned the name Bennett. My goodness, Tony Bennett is so big in America today. And, you know, he, uh, he would be the first to, to, to say to anybody uh, that he learned the game of basketball. The most influential person in his life is his father, Dick Bennett. You mentioned Dick Bennett, and you mentioned pack line defense, uh, and you mentioned being in and around the Milwaukee area with Tom Crean and going to his practices. And, and um, I, I, take just a minute um, and, and talk to us about the pack line. I don't know. I don't know if with the Jackrabbits now, are you using the pack line? Is that something, or you use part of it? How, how does that go? I mean, it's hard. Hard for me to imagine you separating yourself totally and going, say, zone or anything like that. Well, you know, I, I was fortunate because I went to Coach Bennett's camps as a kid. My high school coach took me up there, and 
uh, got to watch Tony, and Tony was kind of an idol of mine as I was growing up as a kid. I remember even vividly being in camp when he was the year he was coming out for the draft, and he came in and shot in front of the camp that night and took a picture with him. And um, so it's interesting because I kind of idolized Tony as a kid growing up. And then when, when Coach Bennett got the Wisconsin job, a few of my best friends ended up playing for him. I wasn't good enough to play at Wisconsin, but I spent a lot of weekends over there watching practice as well. And then when Tony completed his, you know, was done playing, um, you know, professionally in the NBA as well as overseas, I would go to those practices and he and I started to build a relationship. He came in and started as a special assistant to his dad and then eventually an assistant. And so I studied quite a bit of coach Bennett and the pack line defense through watching practices again, attending the camp. So very familiar with how he did things. And and so Tony over the last shoot, 20 years uh, has been like a big brother figure to me. He's every move that I've made in terms of coaching uh, I've confided in him, bounced the ideas off him, uh, what he thinks, what his perspective is, because I know he's got tremendous character and work ethic and does things the right way, and he'd never lead me astray. So the Bennetts have been very influential on me, um, and, and so I've even spent some time in the off season going up to northern Wisconsin to visit with Coach Bennett, Dick Bennett, and still talk to him about pack line defense and different strategies and concepts and post doubles and I would say for the most part, we employ a fair amount of, um, you know, fair amount of his defensive schemes and concepts. We played certainly more of a pack system. Uh, I think some of the rule changes and things uh, have impacted a little bit how we've done things here in our personnel. But um, that influence on me, I really believe in the pack line defense. Uh, I really believe in, in, in how Coach Bennett uh, and then how Tony, how they how they teach it, and it's, it's had a tremendous influence on me and how we've done things here. I, I'm getting into an area here that I've never gotten into with uh, uh, people that we've uh, had on the podcast here, but I, 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 the temptation is too much here. Um, recently, Virginia played at Duke. Did you watch the game? I caught the part of the second half, but not, not all of it. Um, well, you know, what I was going to ask you is how you felt the pack line defense of Virginia was effective that day and then areas in which it might not have been effective. I, you know, I, I don't want you to scout either team, but just the concept I think is, is interesting to me. I don't know as much about the pack line as maybe I should, but I think I think our – we got a lot of young coaches that listen to this weekly. I think they'd be interested in, you know, your evaluation of that. Well, I, I think overall, and again, I, I I saw parts of the game. I can pretty much guess certain things and why this happened and that happened based on different coverage plans. But what what I'd say overall is this: is with the pack line, I think Tony's conviction uh, to how they do things, um, their system, and the way they go about it. Uh, I mean, they have real defensive integrity. I mean, year in and year out, the personnel changes and the numbers don't. You know, they they consistently uh, hold teams down. They um, they they find a way to prevent the ball from getting to the paint, and they also guard the three-point line exceptionally well. And their defensive, uh, you know, strategy kind of has a way to make your pipes break. You know, over time, they kind of choke you out, and some teams start settling for really tough shots. And 
I think that Duke um, specifically, you know, they've got some tremendous athleticism and shooting ability. I think there's times they're probably able to shoot over the top. Uh, I think there's times in transition where, you know, the pack line really is predicated on getting getting set and making sure you're guarding space and guarding those gaps. And I think, you know, Duke's so dynamic in transition, getting out and running. Uh, I would think there would be times it would be hard uh, when you're so used to guarding in the half court, guarding certain concepts to, to guard in the open floor would be difficult, number one. I think number two, uh, you know, with Duke length and, and size and the guys that can shoot the basketball for them, I think there's going to be times where, you, you know, you're within that 15 feet and as you're closing out, you know, there's going to be shots that fall over the top of you that you're not able to, to contest quite as well as you'd like. So, again, without watching a lot of it, that would have been my guess on those fronts. But, um, and again, you, you know, nothing nothing's perfect. There's no scheme or system that's perfect and works every time and every possession against every team. If there was, I think all coaches would do it. But as much as something has withstood the test of time, you know, whether you look at, you know, Coach Beheim's 2-3 zone or you, whether you look at the Bennett's in the pack line, there's been some systems that, you know, those guys aren't making a whole lot of adjustments. They're they're playing their system. They're trapping the post. They're, um, you know, they're hard-edging ball screens. They're over the top. They're staying into the ball. And four guys are pretty much, you know, guarding those gaps. So, um, again, I think uh, overall, if you, if you had to look over the test of time, I think, Tony and, and Coach Bennett, you look at their careers and the success they had, they've hung their hat on that, that that defensive philosophy. It's worked great for them. But to think it's going to work every single night against every team will probably be a little unrealistic as well. TJ, listen, uh, in 2006, you had an opportunity to go to Iowa State. And uh, a lot of great things happened when you went up there, I think. Probably, uh, I, I don't know this, but I, I would think that this is probably where you met your wife. Yes? That is, yep. yeah. Okay, all right. So that was the, the most important thing that happened while you went up there. But you went up there under Greg McDermott, who uh, is now at Creighton. Um, you stayed at Iowa State when he left. Fred Horiberg, the mayor, came into Iowa State. And then later you went to the University of Washington, where another great coach, Lorenzo Romar, kind of weave your time together with those three coaches without spending too much time on either one. But those are three very famous, highly influential coaches that you had a chance to work under and learn from. Well, first with Greg McDermott, he, uh, he had recruited me at, out of high school. I knew him since I was 16 years old. He was a Division II coach at Wayne State, Nebraska. Uh, so I had known him, and uh, we had maintained a relationship. I worked his camps at Northern Iowa whenever I could. I just thought, you know, I thought a lot of Greg, and I wanted to learn from him and be around him whenever I had a chance. So um, Greg and I had met at Hutch um, when we were there playing. You know, we talked about being there with our Chipola team, had dinner, and really kind of hit it off, I think, took our, you know, our relationship and that connection. Uh, I could tell after we left dinner that he and I just kind of had, you know, that connection. And so when he went to Iowa State, he offered me an opportunity that, Certainly at, at 26 years old, I wasn't qualified for uh, based on my resume, but he took a chance on me. Uh, he gave me an opportunity, and, and, I mean, I can't explain. I can't tell you enough my gratitude because I wouldn't be able to provide for our family and 
we wouldn't be able to be where we were if it wasn't for Greg giving us that chance. So it's fortunate to stay with him for four years, learn a lot, great offensive mind, really a pro in terms of running a program, tremendous character, uh, just does things the right way and really learned that from Greg at a young age. I was fortunate with him for four years, and then he left for Creighton. I had opportunity with, with Coach Hoiberg to stay on as the associate head coach. Uh, it was an attractive opportunity for me at 30 or 31 because, you know, I'd been at Iowa State, recruited a lot of the guys, had tremendous sense of pride in the program, and now Fred had come in, had never been a coach as smart of a basketball mind as he is and as, as coveted and, and renowned as he was as a player, both collegiately in the NBA, he hadn't coached. So I felt like it was a great opportunity for me to to – you know, to be alongside him as his, as his right-hand man and kind of say some of the do's and don'ts or things we had learned at Iowa State. Also, hopefully, be able to help him from a recruiting standpoint and also, you know, just knowing our guys and what we need to do. So spent uh, three and a half seasons there then uh, with Fred, and really offensively, Fred is so phenomenal and, and just took a lot of things away from uh, how he understands spacing and pace and flow and just tremendous mind that way and um and then had a chance uh my wife had, you know we had met there under the during the time where I was working for coach Hoyberg she had been playing professionally and she was out in Seattle and just loved it and coach Romar and I had known each other for a number of years thought the world of him just felt like a guy who not only a tremendous coach but even better person and teacher and mentor for young men and and so that opportunity came about kind of out of nowhere. And my wife just loved Seattle and had been there as a player and was debating, you know, if she was going to continue playing. So, you know, a lot of times in coaching you make moves that, you know, your wife might just support you and go with you. And this was one that she was really excited about um, as well because, you know, she had spent that time. So we went there and had two seasons under Coach Romar and really learned a lot about you know, what does it take to become a head coach and run a program? Coach is uh, a guy that just does so much every day. He's a coach's coach and just invests so much in his players. So learned a great deal from him and the time I was there. And then really a unique circumstance where, where Coach Hoiberg called me after two years. And now our, our situation had changed with our family because we had uh, we had twins. And so getting back to the Midwest where my family was and more of our roots became a little bit of a priority just to – have some help with the kids and, and just people we'd known and friendships. So Hoiberg called me back and uh, said, you know, I'd love for you to come back to Iowa State. Um, and so we did that. And then a few short months after, uh, he had departed for the Chicago Bulls job. And uh, Coach Prone got the job and fortunately was able to stay on with, with Steve for one year And uh, before this situation came up. So really, I've been – so fortunate the the mentors uh we talked about the bennett's earlier and then the guys that i've worked for i've worked for some phenomenal coaches or even better people and i've tried like heck to take a lot of notes and be a great listener and learner because i've had uh really fortunate those guys have taken me under their wing and helped prepare me for this opportunity a lot of coaches are assistants uh, for life i mean i and they're great coaches i mean i, I remember at north carolina bill guthridge said over and over and over again after he had been offered I don't know how many jobs. He turned them all down to stay at North Carolina. He said, I, I am very comfortable being at North Carolina with Dean Smith, and, and I want to be assistant coach the rest of my life. You, however, were an assistant for a number of years under a, a McDermott, under Romar, under 
uh, Hoiberg and under Hire. I mean, there were, you, you, you had an opportunity to learn from a, uh, a number of people. When you move from the assistant's chair to the head chair, to the head coaching chair, there are a lot of responsibilities that now fall in your lap. Um, was that a difficult cha uh, a change, or was that something that you easily adjusted because you'd been through so many good learning experiences with these other guys? Well, I think the, the one experience that stood out the most was when Coach Hoiberg uh, came to Iowa State because he hadn't been on a college campus, so grade point average, APR, study hall, recruiting calendar, compliance, uh, planning a practice, uh, recruiting, all these things, uh, I felt like uh, my role or how I could best serve him is kind of educate him on what I had learned and seen and known uh, under Coach McDermott. So I felt like that was a great preparational tool because I was, for a long time, uh, Coach Hoiberg and I, for probably three or, I don't I think it was probably three months before he had hired uh, other assistant coaches on the staff were late that summer. So we had got to spend a lot of time together. So I felt like at that point I was learning a lot on what it would, you know, you need to do as a head coach because we were going through that experience together. And then as you move from, you know, all the guys that work for, I've been lucky to work for a lot of guys who are really successful. And so I've tried to ask them in, in the right way. And when you're on the recruiting trail or you're in the office late at night making calls, you know, just what are some differences? What are things? Um, because you hear head coaches say a lot that it's a lot different. You don't sleep as well. The stress is more. You obsess about things and worry about things that, as an assistant, may not cross your mind. And so I wanted to make sure I knew as much and had as good of a feel for that. You still don't ever know until you're in the in the seat exactly how that's all going to go. But those guys really all helped prepare me for it. And I felt like, you know, coming in, the most important thing to me is uh, was coming in is that everybody knew how important this was to me, how passionate I was about it, how hard we were going to work, and that certainly didn't come in having all the answers. Uh, didn't think we had the perfect system and didn't think uh, we – I know I still have a lot to learn, but at the same time, felt like I was really prepared by those guys, and I felt like my job on a daily basis, whether it was proving our coaching staff, uh, proving our players, administration, everybody around us, you know, we're going to do the right thing. We love basketball, and we're going to invest our heart and soul into this thing, and we're going to keep trying to get it right. And and I think that was the approach we took. I'd say this. The one thing to me that's the biggest difference is that, you know, when you're the head coach, I don't. you can't have a bad day. You know, as an assistant, you come in some days, and you might be tired or sick or you lost a big recruiter or a big game or something didn't go your way, and, I think as a head coach, everybody is feeding off your energy level and your attitude, and they're looking at you, especially in times of adversity. And I think it's so important how you carry yourself, your confidence, how you shake hands, your inflection of your voice, how you look people in the eye. I think there's so many things every day that people are looking at to see if you really believe in what you're doing. And I think to me that was the biggest difference. And fortunately, I felt like I've learned from some guys and had, had an okay awareness to that. So. Um, but something that we're still working at every day to be better at. This has been a quick half an hour. I want to get uh, several things here. So in, in quick order, kind of give us what you think about these next several things that I'm, I'm going to give up. Mike Dom, one of your best players, maybe your best player. 
that nobody in the country knows outside of South Dakota State. Tell me about Mike Dom. How, how, how good is he? Why should we be excited about watching him? Yeah, he's a tremendously skilled, elite scorer, stretch big man that can shoot the ball, 6'9", 6'10", 7'4", wingspan, and shoots it like Larry Bird did back in the day, kind of up, up high, uh, slightly behind his head, so you can't really get to it and contest it. Uh, he's just an elite scorer. He's Right now he's in the top 20 all-time in the history of college basketball, and he's continuing on the climb. And um, if he can stay fortunate, uh, injury-free, uh, has a great chance to be top 10 all-time in the history of the college game. So phenomenal young man, better person than player. Been really blessed to have a chance to coach him. And uh, and he's just he's done so many things for this campus, community, our university. Can't say enough great things about Mike Dom. For a program like uh, South Dakota State, the Jackrabbits, people don't know about you. What's the key? You, you've, you've brought that program to a, a point now where there's great respect regionally around there. You're in the Summit League. You're doing great there. You're leading the league. What's the key to sustaining success year after year at a place like South Dakota State? I think it comes down to people. I think it's having great coaches on staff who are leaders, who are servant leaders, who are highly invested in our players. I think it comes down to the guys that we recruit being guys that respect our program, that want to be part of winning and are willing to sacrifice themselves for this, for the team. And I think we're going to be a place where we recruit young guys out of high school. And a lot of times we try to redshirt them. And what we're going to try to do is develop those guys. And I think as long as, we continue to bring in young people uh, that respect this place and, and want to be here and want to work at it um, that will continue to thrive because I feel like with our young guys now, we have seven freshmen on our roster. Those guys, you can see, they know there's an obligation and a responsibility to carry on uh, the legacy that some of these older guys have put in front of them. Uh, and they take a great sense of pride in that. And I'm confident if we continue to bring in the right people that that model will be able to repeat itself over time. All right, let's talk about your real passion, and that's young people. Uh, you're a big community service coach, person, human. Um, young people are important to you. Teaching young people are important to you. You talked about it as a high school coach, then as a junior college coach, and now as a college coach. Tell me about some of the programs that you've been involved with in terms of teaching young people how to live and mature? Well, I've spent a lot of time at the Boys and Girls Clubs, um, you know, America at the various stops that I've had. Uh, even to the point now, we're fortunate that, um, you know, we, we give a fair amount of money through uh, Applebee's here. I do some commercials and things like that, and every dollar for Burger Soul goes back to the Boys and Girls Club. I've uh, I've not only tried to do things to invest financially, but also in terms of time with young people in Ames when I was at Iowa State. Uh, a lot of times the offseason, I try to go over once a week and just be there as a mentor, be there at times, bring guys over, love shoot at our practice facility at times, just hang with them there, whether it's just shooting pool to let young people know that uh, there's people out there that believe in you and, and mentors and uh, want to see you be successful. I was fortunate as a young person. I had a lot of uh, guys I looked up to, the big brothers, who took me under their wing at points in my life where I could have gone a different direction. So that's been one that's really been huge for me. Uh, the Stay in the Wind program through the NABC 
Uh, my good friend Al Fadarero took me under his wing probably five, five, six years ago now in, in the program that we took a lot of pride into going into schools, um, teaching lessons about staying in school and um, really going to places that are challenged economically uh, and have some more poverty and things along those lines and just going in and trying to take a couple members of the team and a reading program that we've ran, uh, it's really been successful. It's been a great way for our players to connect, great way for us to connect in the community as well. And um, I've also been involved over time in the Special Olympics. I mean, just love, um, you know, seeing young people have opportunity to learn life lessons through athletics. So as much as the wins and losses are important, uh, I've got a special place in my heart for young people developing. And, and I think at times where we all needed a hug or we need confidence or someone to take an interest in us. I want to try to do the best job I can at being that for others as, as we move forward. Well, I want to take just a moment and thank everyone uh, for tuning in to the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast. It's different. We don't know South Dakota State as well as we should. We know them a whole lot better now. We don't know T.J. Otzelberger as well as we should. We know him a lot better now. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in to the podcast and also to Coach Otzelberger uh, for taking some time. He, get, he took valuable time away from his practice floor and team uh, to be with us, but I know he thinks that's important. And I want to wish the best of luck to your Jackrabbits. We're going to be, you got a lot of fans out here now going to be following you as you go through the rest of the year. And I want to say to everybody to learn more about the NABC, to learn more about Guardians of the Game, you should visit nabc.com. Come.